like to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have a sanctuary Bible. The number's wrong in the uh, bulletin, but it's been corrected on my copy. 1036, our text is Luke 16, 1 through 8. This is sometimes called the parable of the unjust steward or the wicked steward. Uh, it's one of the more interesting and challenging parables in all of the Bible. It's confounded interpreters for centuries. I was reading through a commentary I have on the parables by Klein Snodgrass, who teaches at our seminary in North Park. He's very thorough. He's listed 15 different interpretations of this parable. And um, the great thing about parables is that it's hard to know if you're right. You know, sometimes, sometimes you can know you're right, but it's, it's possible to have multiple interpretations. So this is a challenging one, and we'll see why. Before I go to the parable, uh, just a few words of introduction about, again, Middle Eastern agricultural life. I mentioned this last week that there were sort of three classes of people that are involved in agricultural, agriculture back then. The first and the highest level is the landowner. They own the land. And they're responsible for it. Um, they gather income from its work. The next level down is the manager or the steward. They're the ones that arrange for uh, laborers to come to the vineyard uh, or the, the plantation to do the work, which is why last week we saw that the owner doing it himself was quite unusual in that parable. Uh, that was a sign of the incarnation. But the manager is the one who keeps track of the work, who pays people, who arranges things, keeps books, keeps track of everything that's owed to the master and keeps track of what the master owes to other people. Finally, at the bottom level are the workers. They could be day laborers. They're paid at the end of the day. They could also be renters. They could be people who rent land that the landowner owns, and usually it'd be the landowner who maybe owns land that's far away, and he can't oversee it every day. These people rent it, and they owe then the landowner either a percentage of the yield of their harvest or a preset amount, in which case they take a risk. If the yield is high, it goes well for them. If the yield is low, they could end up in debt to that owner, and that could be very bad for them. Uh, if, if their crop is destroyed entirely by locusts or weather or something like that, it could take them a generation to recover from that debt. And it's not likely that the landowner would forgive that debt easily. So those are the three levels, and we're going to see all three of those people in this coming parable. The second thing I want to say about parables in general is that when we interpret parables, sometimes the first thing we do is we, we try to plug in the parts that we think we know. And usually if there's an authoritative figure in the parable somewhere, we assume that that is God, which is usually a good assumption. Generally speaking, that's right. And then there's other actors in the parable who could either be Jesus or people or the Holy Spirit. It all just depends. If they're evil, then they could say, well, then those are, those are evil people or it could be the devil or something like that. In one rare occasion, Jesus actually interprets his own parable for his listeners. That's that famous parable about the soil and the sower. That's a fabulous one. It kind of gives us a template for how to understand uh, parables. In some cases, though, the authoritative figure that you find in the parable is not to be compared to God directly, but more in a negative sense. These are sometimes called negative comparison parables, or they're called how much more parables. And a classic example of this is there's a very short parable Jesus tells about an unjust judge. There's an unjust judge, and there's a woman who needs justice. And she keeps coming to him and pestering him for justice. 
And in the end, he says, I don't care about this woman at all, but I'm tired of her wearing me out, and so I'm going to grant her justice. And Jesus says, if an unjust judge can be pestered into giving justice, then how much more will our God, who is infinitely just, grant justice to his children who cry out for justice day and night? And so that's a how much more comparison. So God is not, an, not, God is not like an unjust judge because he's not unjust. God is infinitely just. But even if an unjust judge can be gotten to do the right thing by pestering, how much more can our Father be trusted to give us what we need? So that's sort of a negative comparison or a how much more comparison. One simple way of maybe looking at this is in our context is if you like Great America, which is a fun place, but you know that Disneyland is its a lot better, right? So you could say, yes. So you could say, Great America is wonderful, but going to Disneyland makes Great America look like a trip to the dentist, right? Great America is still good, but how much more greater than Great America is Disneyland? It makes Great America look like a trip to the dentist, okay? So that's kind of that how much more thing. I'm going to encourage us that in this very challenging parable that we have today to maybe look at it through the lens of a, as a how much more type of parable. So with that introduction, and I hope you're just tantalized now, you're just dying for the reading of this parable, Luke 16, 1 through 8. And just in context, this follows on directly after the parable of the prodigal son. It's all in the same breath, okay? Jesus is, just keeps on talking. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are listening, you should be wondering yourself, what is this parable about? Is Jesus encouraging us to steal? I mean, is that the question? Is, is anyone thinking that? Is that what this parable is kind of like, really? The, the dishonest manager was commended by the master because he had acted shrewdly. Wow. And then this warning kind of at the end. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing 
and their dealings then are the people of the light. Well, as I said, this has been a parable that has confounded uh, interpreters for centuries. Some have gone so far as said, this must not be really part of the Bible because it's, it, it really does seem like Jesus is saying, stealing is good. Okay? Others have said, well, you know, this is just, this is um, kind of an image for something. We can't quite figure out what. It's, well, let's leave it in the realm of mystery. Okay? Let's work on it, though. Let's work on it. I think we need to unpack it a little bit in terms of the time that it was written into or the time that it was spoken into by Jesus. All the people that Jesus was speaking to, they knew about agriculture then. They knew about what was happening. So here's what we have. We have a rich man. Uh, he's a landowner. He has a manager. Those are the two levels already of agriculture that we saw. And he gets word from somewhere that his manager has wasted his possessions, has not managed well, basically. And so he calls that manager in and says, I've heard some pretty disturbing things about you. Uh, and what have you got to say about yourself? It doesn't say in here anywhere that the manager offered a defense of himself. What would have been very common back then is if somebody had spoken against my honor as a manager, my fir the first thing I would have said to the owner was, bring those people here and have them say it to my face. I have to confront them directly. What's probably happening is it was obvious that he was guilty. There, he didn't even ask for a defense. His silence was an admission of guilt. I'm in trouble. And in this moment, we actually find a grain of mercy because the owner at that point could have had him thrown in jail, could have had him uh, sold into some sort of indentured servitude. He could have had him severely punished for the mismanagement of his estate. But he, all he said was, bring me the books so we can have an accounting and you're fired. It's really, he got off lightly. This is a light, this is kind of like a, I mean, he lost his job, that's huge, but the much more severe punishment he didn't receive. So now the manager has an impending crisis. He's about to lose his job. He has one task left to do, which is to go get the books and bring them back to the owner, this tiny window of opportunity, and he's going to make the most of it. He's going to act shrewdly in the middle of it. And so what he does is he goes and he gets the books, but on his way back to the master, he finds two of the people that owe his master money. They could have been tenant farmers or laborers who had rented land and owed part of the proceeds of the produce to the owner. And so one man owed 800 gallons of olive oil. And he said, quickly, in your own handwriting, make it 400. Somebody else owed 1,000 bushels of wheat. Quickly, make it 800. So these huge discounts were given to these people that owed the master money. The amount that it was worth was calculated at about 500 denarius or denarii, which is about a year and a half worth of labor. So this is not inconsiderable if you take your salary and multiply, multiply it by a year and a half. This is not a, it depends on who you are, I guess, right? Yeah. But if you're retired, I don't know what uh, your salary is. You know, if you're, but uh, it's a lot of money, okay? It's a lot of money in our society. You can do a lot with a year and a half of salary. He forgave him that debt, and he put those people into his own personal debt. Then he brought the books to the master. The master takes the books fires him, and then finds that amongst all the other mismanagement, there's been this reduction in debt. 
The other people are indebted to this man. They'll welcome him into his home when, if he comes upon hard times. They may even give him a job somewhere because they're indebted to him. The master has a choice now. He can go to the people who have gotten the discount and say, that was not done with my authority. I'm going to have to take that back. Although they're in the middle of a party right now because they've had a windfall of a year and a half labor. And so the, the owner can seem like a stingy miser. Or the owner, the other choice the owner has is to say, well, I've lost, I've lost that income. It's gone. In that society, your honor and your reputation was sometimes even more valuable to you than money. And actually, the, the owner was more likely to make that choice. I'm going to let those redu- reduced debts stay the way they are and also enjoy the goodwill and honor that that's going to give me in the community because that's actually more, more valuable in the long run than olive oil and bushels of wheat. And then the owner looked at his manager and said, that was pretty smart. You're pretty smart. You, 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 you cooked the books right before I fired you. You made some friends with it. I can't do anything about it. I'm pretty mad at you, but you're pretty smart. That's all it, that's all it says. The owner commended the dishonest manager not for his honesty, because there was no honesty to commend him for. It doesn't say that in the text. The owner commended the manager for his shrewdness. That's a word we don't use every day, is it? Shrewdness. It's not quite wise. It's not quite smart. It occupies a semantic domain somewhere in between all those things, right? It means clever. It means thinking on your feet. It means making the most of it. It means... Look, having a sense for what's going on. Here's what's going on. He noticed that his manager was somewhat merciful. He didn't have him thrown in prison on the spot. He got away with a firing. And he banked on that mercy and he said, I think he's going to continue to be merciful. And I'm going to cook the book some more. And I'm going to make friends while I do it. And he's going to continue to be merciful and he's going to let those debt reductions stand and I'm going to walk out of here with some new friends. And he was right. In this parable, at least, he was right. Now, this may not play out again. and We may not be able to craft a modern parable like this one because I think we would have lawsuits and the police would be called and there'd be an email trail of all this stuff and it, would, it just wouldn't work out the same way. But in this place and time, this parable works that the dishonest manager is commended, not for his honesty, but for his shrewdness, because he knew his master was merciful, and he counted on his master continuing to be merciful in light of an impending crisis that he had. Well, Jesus ends with a warning here. He says, you know what? The children of this world, in other words, the people who really don't believe in God that much, the people who just live in a carnal sense, that worry about their day-to-day existence, the people of this world are more shrewd than the children of the light. He was kind of encouraging and warning and complaining a little bit about his own disciples by saying that. He's saying this man was smart enough to guess that his master would continue to be generous 
and merciful. But this generation of followers doesn't quite get it about God. Now, I said this, we could think about this as a how much more parable. And let's try to wrap the parable together. This owner is not God, right? And the manager isn't Jesus or us or anything like that. But put it this way. If there's an owner who commends the shrewdness of his manager for making, for securing his own future in the face of a coming crisis, how much more will our Father in heaven commend us for providing for our spiritual future? Not by being dishonest. The dishonesty has nothing to do with it. But by acting shrewdly and having a sense of who God is so that we can secure our eternal future. Does every, I'm going to say that again because I think that's a tough concept. So this is, that's why this is a challenging parable. If a human owner can commend a dishonest, rascally manager because he was smart about securing his future so that he could eat tomorrow, eat food, his physical existence, how much more will our Father in heaven who is gracious and loving and kind commend us if we understand his nature and follow through on that to secure our spiritual and eternal future, our future with him in heaven. It all has to do with our view of God. It has to do with how we understand God. And Jesus is telling his disciples here, you guys don't operate out of the correct understanding of God. And to put it simply, the shorthand of this is, you do not act like your father is your father. You don't act like your father is your father. This is just after the parable of the prodigal son. You could also call it the parable of the generous father or the loving father and the two lost sons. Neither one of these sons truly understood how merciful and grace-filled their father was. The younger one went off and did a bunch of stupid things, and when he came to his senses, he realized, I can never go back and be a son again. My father will never accept me back into the family, but maybe I can be a servant. What he found out, though, was he came back, put the ring on his finger, put a robe about him, welcome into the house and, and have a feast. His father was far more merciful than he ever understood. The second son, the same way, he left the feast because he, or he, did, he refused to come into the house to the feast because he was so mad. How merciful it was for his father to come out of the house to find him and implore him to come back in and celebrate with the family. The father is far more merciful than either of these sons understood. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the continuation of the previous parable. The father is more merciful than you can imagine. You are not treating your father like he's your father. Your father is kind. Your father is loving. Your father is gracious. Your father is merciful. And you can keep on counting and banking on his mercy as you secure your eternal future. The life you live is in between these two bookends. God has found out that you've messed up. And he says an accounting is going to come. In that in-between time is when you need to act shrewdly to secure your future. For a follower of Jesus, it means operating out of what we know the Father's mercy will be like. 
Now, I have to say this. Whenever I talk about God the Father, and this is very important, is that not everybody in this room has had a good father. Not everybody in this room has had a good mother. Fathers and mothers are broken, sinful people. They let us down. Some of you never even had a father or mother, perhaps. You just grew grew up without one for one reason or the other. And so I understand that sometimes when we talk about God as Father, that makes it very difficult for some people. And we can only pray that God can reveal himself as Father and as Mother and as Parent in the Scriptures in such a way that it can break through our own polluted sense of what our fathers and mothers are like. Because God made fathers and mothers to love their children no matter what. It's in our DNA. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about. You cannot stop loving your children. You can't. Even when you punish them, even when you say, I heard something, even when you say there's an accounting coming, you still love your kids. You may be surprised to know that I punish my son George from time to time. That little angel, he's so sweet. Yesterday I gave him a timeout for doing something I had just told him not to do. It was just a minute. He didn't like that timeout at all. He kind of, you know, he told him to cross his legs and he, oh, he was mad. And I said, you just have to wait till it's over. And, we, and then finally I said, count down from 10 because the last 10 seconds were almost there. And he counted down. And then... After almost every time out, he crawls up into my lap. And I say, George, I love you. That's why I punish you. That's why you get timeouts. It's because I love you and I want you to grow up to be a good boy. I want you to grow up to be happy. And you're going to be happier if I punish you now. Believe it or not, you're not happy now. But and he, he sits in my lap and he knows I love him. He knows. And he hugs and, and we cuddle for a while. And then he gets up and he just runs off and plays some more. I know you do this with your children too. It's in our DNA to love our children. We look at people in the news and their children are on trial for something. You know what I'm talking about? And you see the mom, you see the dad, they're on TV and they're like, I still love my son, I still love my daughter. And the world scoffs and says, oh, come on. They're guilty. It doesn't matter if they're guilty. That parent never stops loving that child, ever, no matter what. Jesus is telling his disciples, you don't act like your father is your father. Your father is kind. You think he's mean. Your father is patient. You think he's quick to anger. Your father loves you but all you see is sternness. You do not operate out of how your father truly is. And so you won't be commended for your shrewdness unless you do. You need to operate out of how you understand the father's. Now the father does get angry, no doubt. Just read the scriptures, it's there. The father does say, what have I heard about you? And the father does say, there will be an accounting. Oh, there will be, absolutely. Read the end of the book, it's in there. The Father does do those things, but he's also merciful and kind and loving and gracious. Somebody could look at this parable and say, I can't live like that. That would be like 
Like God's grace and mercy is a license for me to go sin more, you know? Or I'd be like taking God's mercy for granted. I can't bank on it that way. God wants us to bank on it that way. God wants us to take his grace for granted. That's what the cross was for. There's this supply of love and grace that's tied up in the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is so much of it, you can bank on it. It's for you. You can live your life operating out of that grace and forgiveness all the time. You can take it for granted because it was granted to you. Grace is a free gift of forgiveness from God to you, of love, of mercy, of peace, of grace. It's for you. It was granted to you. You can live out of that. I think there's so many people who are worried about, am I all right with God? Does God love me? Does God forgive me? Does God give me a new life? And they're so worried about that part of life, they're not living the life that God wants them to lead. God is saying in this parable, among other places, it's all settled. It's all taken care of. It's been done for you on the cross. I'm going to free you up from that now to live a life in the knowledge that your Father loves you all the time. And now the Spirit will have a chance to renovate your soul if you live out of this. It's taken care of. I got punished a lot when I was a teenager. Oh, I had a love-hate relationship with one of the family cars. I loved it because I loved driving it. I must have hated it because I kept doing stupid things to it and in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? When I was 13 years old, I took it for a drive. Far. And I wrecked it, kind of. I didn't wreck it body-wise, but I was doing donuts with it in an empty field, kind of like out here. But there were rocks in this field, and they went up into the engine, and part of the cooling system broke. And then I drove it to a state park like 20 miles away. I was with a friend. This guy, I, I, I needed to stay away from this guy. Whenever he and I were together, bad things happened. He's like, true in life. Just If you have that person in your life, just lose their phone number, okay? It's just better that way. Steven, anyway. So then the car broke down as we were driving home. And somehow we managed to get it home, even though the police came along. They thought I was old enough to drive it. I was tall for my age. Thank God. My parents came home. What's wrong with the car? I got grounded for a month. Then when I was 16, I was driving the same stupid car, which I loved and hated. I was driving to Bible study. Isn't that holy? On a Wednesday night. I was driving too fast. I hit some dirt on the side of the road. The car swerved, did all sorts of weird things. Ended up teetering halfway on the edge of a ditch. A person drove up to me right after that. He had seen the whole thing. He said, if you had died, I wouldn't care at all. I think he was trying to scare me. Either that or he was really angry. I think he'd had, he was fed up with stupid teenage drivers, so that he vented on me, which I think was mean. And if you're listening on the internet, mister, I forgive you. That was a mean thing to say, but I forgive you because it's, it's long ago. You scared me. It was mean. I was hurt. That was the context. Then the police came. He called the police. Thank you. He called the police. The police came. Were you, how fast were you going? Uh, too fast. How fast? Maybe 55. That's too fast for this road, like a curvy road. He didn't give me a ticket, but I knew I was in trouble. They called my parents, and this is what they said. Your son is okay. 
This is the police. Isn't that smart to do it in that order? Because otherwise, they don't hear the second part, right? Come find them on Hacienda del Sol, which is this curvy road in Tucson. So they came. My mom and dad came in the other family car. A tow truck came, pulled it up and out, started the car. It started just fine. It was ready to drive home. My father walked up to me with the keys to that very car. Hans Eric, do you want to drive home? I was not expecting that. He was willing to trust me with that car, even after I almost destroyed it. I think if he had, maybe he had time to think about it. My dad wasn't a perfect person, but in that moment, he really shone. He was a prince. He could have come up and said, give me those keys. You're grounded for another month. What's with you in this car? All sorts of things. He didn't do that. He handed me the keys. Do you want to drive home? Here's your, here's your second chance, son. I'll never forget that. I didn't have him for too many years after that. I had him for another four years, four or five years, not long. But in that time, I think he taught me that day that I could live in the knowledge that he was a merciful and loving father. And that freed me up to do other things as his son. We don't treat the father like he is the father. Jesus is telling us, your father is your father. He loves you. He's merciful to you. He gives you the keys. He frees you up to a new life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how sweet it is to call you Father. How sweet you are to us, your children who make mistakes. We know the day of accounting is coming, Lord. Help us to live as if you are our Father in that time. Amen.